Let's pray together. Father, we pray by your spirit that you would open our eyes to see you. You would open our ears to hear you. Open our hearts to receive you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is one thing to read through the Gospels and reckon with the teachings of Jesus, how to live, how to love, how to serve, how to treat one another, how to approach our wealth, how to approach God, and so on. Jesus teaches us about a lot of things. He shows us time and time and time again that his Gospel His good news has countless ramifications and implications for our lives. Jesus wants to utterly transform everything about us, individually and corporately. So during his earthly ministry, and now through his living word, Jesus is our teacher. And it's one thing, a good thing, a necessary thing, to reckon with the teachings of Jesus. But it's another thing. It's another thing entirely to reckon with the person of Jesus. To look him in the eye. To listen to his voice. To stop. To stop what we're doing. Take a step back and reckon with Jesus. Reckon with his teachings, yes. But you've got to reckon with the man. With the man himself. With the real authentic, unedited, unfiltered Jesus of the Bible. The one who claims to be God. The one who walks out onto center stage of human history and says, spotlight please. And he says to every human soul here today, here I am. We have spent many weeks now on Sunday mornings, if you've been tracking with us, looking through the Gospel of Luke and considering the teachings of Jesus. And now in our text this morning that Mary just read to us, Luke 12, verses 49 through 56, Jesus looks us in the eye. And Jesus bears his soul. And Jesus calls us to himself and he begs us. You can hear it this morning in the tone of Jesus' voice. He begs us to recognize reality. This morning we see a lot of things about this man, about Jesus the man. One of the things we see is his fervency. We'll see this. Jesus is not, no matter how he might be portrayed, he is not some kind of passive, polite, mystical, you know, weak-kneed, spiritual mystery man who kind of floats a foot or so above the earth. He's fervent in his mission to save the lost. We see Jesus' passion this morning. He is not some kind of far-off, removed, unemotional, you know, like an oil painting in a dusty Sunday school classroom. He's passionate to redeem his own. We see Jesus' awareness this morning. Put it bluntly, Jesus is not stupid, and we'll see that. He's not out of touch with the implications of his message. He knows that some will choose him, and he's very aware that some will not. And we see Jesus' insistence. He insists he's God. He insists he's come to fulfill the will of God. And that even though 
even though he may be hard to understand sometimes, Jesus is not hard to accept. And he wants you to see him. He wants you to see him unfiltered. He wants you to see him unedited. Oh, the fervency we see this morning. Oh, the passion we see that Jesus has in his hearts. And he wants us to reckon with him. So Jesus places himself before us today in these verses from Luke 12. And he invites us this morning out of our illusions and into the light of reality. So look with me, if you have a Bible, at Luke 12, 49 through 56. I'd like for us to see in Jesus' own words simply what he invites us to reckon with. And the first thing we see is that he came to set the world on fire. Here's how Jesus put it in verse 49. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I like how the New Living Translation puts it. I have come to set the world on fire, and I wish it were already burning. Now, typically, I don't know about you, but when I hear someone say, I've come to set something on fire, it has negative connotations. It means just pure destruction. That's not what Jesus is saying when he says, I've come to set the world on fire. It wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to be saying, I've come to destroy the world. (laughs) You know, Jesus, who came to seek and save the lost, to be saying, I've come just to burn it all up. When Jesus says here in verse 49 that he came to set the world on fire, came to cast fire on the earth, he means it in the fullest, most robust, most biblical, most righteous, most purifying sense of the word. We might think about it this way, that Jesus, Jesus the man, is saying, I've come, yes, to judge where judgment is required. I've come, yes, to destroy what needs to be destroyed, to be destroyed. but I've also come to give life where death now reigns. I've come to put right everything that is amiss. And oh, by the way, how I long to do it all now. Here's fervency here, to set right what is wrong. In the scriptures, when we see fire throughout the Old Testament or the New Testament, it can mean a lot of things. It can mean God's purging work. It can mean God's destructive work. It can mean God's empowering work. Just a few months ago on Pentecost, we celebrated this, that when the presence of God came on the people of God, came upon them in the form of fire. And so just in this one verse, verse 49, Jesus is saying he's come to fulfill All of that work of God to judge, to destroy, to empower, to give life, to set right. And you can almost see here in this verse that Jesus' desire is almost uncontainable for him. Jesus felt this way in verse 49. We see it. And Jesus also feels this way now. Jesus has a red-hot passion to set right what is wrong to destroy all the works of the devil and to save those who are perishing. He feels this way about the world. He feels this way about the church. He feels this way about this church. And he feels this way about you. He wants to set the world on fire. So I'd like to ask us a question then. Have we gotten bored with Jesus? 
Or let me ask it a different way. Have we come to think that Jesus is boring? If so, I'd like to suggest that maybe we don't know the real Jesus. And if so, maybe we could use some getting set on fire by Jesus. Because if we're going to reckon with him, the first thing we know, need to know about him is that he came to set the world on fire. And he also came, we'll see next, to save the world from judgment. Praise God. Read verse 50 with me. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Isn't it amazing? Just pause for a second and think about this. Isn't it amazing how Jesus lets us in? Jesus invites us into his heart. Jesus the man. Jesus the real man. Jesus the emotional man. Gives us a glimpse into his deepest emotions. Into his deepest distress. What a gift this is to us. I think of the old hymn that says, What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. And verse 50 gives us a, a glimpse into that. All our distress to bear. He lets us into his heart. And it's fascinating here. Jesus is clearly looking ahead to the cross. He's looking ahead to the torture of his crucifixion. Looking ahead to the judgment he'll bear on Calvary. And he compares it to a baptism. It's interesting. He does that because like a baptism... He knows it will totally encompass him. It will literally bury him. It will wash over him like a flood, and it overwhelms him. But even though that's true, and, and the shadow of the cross hangs over him, and the work that Jesus knows he has to complete on Calvary weighs on him, Jesus feels crippled, not because he wants to escape it. Jesus feels great distress, not because he wants to get out of it. Jesus feels crippled. He feels distressed because he so longs to accomplish it. You see that? He so longs to accomplish the work he came to do. Jesus is not, in the Gospels, some kind of aimless, itinerant preacher you know, just sort of accepting whatever invitation from whatever town came to him next in the mail. He's not aimless. He's like a missile. And he's a missile of justice on the one hand and redemption on the other hand. Justice on the one hand, redemption on the other hand. Both and. Make no mistake that on the one hand, the fire that Jesus came to light upon the earth most certainly contains the judgment of God upon sin, the judgment of God upon evil, upon iniquity. Jesus longs to kindle that fire upon the cross. But also, also in Jesus, we see a God who does not unmercifully inflict his wrath and judgment upon us. Rather, we see in Christ a God who mercifully takes that wrath and judgment upon himself. Justice and redemption. God is not, whatever caricature you have in your mind maybe, God is not some kind of evil villain from a 
you know, like a Marvel superhero movie or something. You know, way up above, shrouded in darkness. And what he does, he, he gets glee out of indiscriminately raining down wrath and judgment upon innocent civilians. What we see in Christ shows us that our God is a gracious, grace-filled, redeeming God who doesn't shroud himself in darkness, but he shrouds himself in Christ in human flesh. And that Christ comes to intentionally take God's wrath and judgment upon himself. This is our God. A God who judges sin, yes, but also a God who in his son offers pardon from that judgment of sin. Judge and pardoner in Christ. Justice and mercy. Righteousness and grace. All meet. They all meet and find their most glorious expression on the cross. So one last point here about Jesus' distress that we need to hear. Maybe, maybe just one person needs to hear this this morning. Jesus' distress here in verse 50. What we see here is more than just a reflection of his human heart. What we see here is a reflection of his father's heart. And I want to read one verse to you from 2 Peter 3.9 that I think gets at the heart of that heart. It says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Just get a load of that. He's patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We see that in Jesus' distress in verse 50. How patient he is towards you. Not wishing that any should perish. And right now, as you sit here, listening to me preach... If you sit here outside of the covering of the mercy of God, the disposition of the heart of God towards you is one of patience. And what he is doing is he is drawing you to Christ by way of the cross. And you have to reckon with the cross. He came to set the world on fire, to save the world from judgment. Third, he came to draw the world to himself. Jesus gets real now. You've got to love the Gospels. If you ever get bored with Jesus, just pick a Gospel and read it. Because he gets real. He says something shocking now, and he shows that he knows how to get our attention. Verse 51 through 53, Jesus asks, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, and son against father. So here's Jesus, okay? The one who Isaiah prophesied would be the prince of peace. The one who Luke told us earlier in his gospel, when he was born, was greeted with songs from the angels of glory to God in the highest and peace, goodwill toward men. Here's Jesus, the one who Paul would say came and made peace by the blood of his cross. The one who is our peace. The one who preached peace. Here's that Jesus, and he's saying, I came to bring division. This is a very hard saying of Jesus. 
and he meant it to be hard. This should go without saying, but I'll say it anyways. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus knew that what he said was going to hit those listeners hard. And because he was God, Jesus knew that these words would be enshrined in Scripture forever and would hit us hard. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Jesus is using language here deliberately, and here's what he's saying. First, yes, you know that my purpose is to bring, bring peace. But I know that the effect of my coming will produce division. There's a difference there. Do you see it? The difference between a purpose and an effect. The purpose of Jesus' coming is to make vertical peace. Yes, praise God, between God and sinners. The purpose of Jesus' coming, yes, praise God, is to produce horizontal peace between those who were once at hostility with one another, Jews and Gentiles, men and women. But the effect of that coming will produce division. Jesus is realistic. Because Jesus is clearly saying in his Gospels and in the entirety of Scripture that he is the exclusive path to peace, to real peace. Not just surfacey peace, but real peace. Jesus clearly says throughout the Scriptures he is the exclusive path to be saved. And because he is the exclusive path to peace, and because he is the exclusive path to salvation from judgment, he knows that some will choose that path and some will reject it. Jesus is an eyes-wide-open Savior. And he spoke in shocking terms then and in shocking terms now, saying that he knows he requires a reckoning. He demands a choice. Jesus insists on every human heart at some point choosing to accept or reject him. And that one choice creates a dividing line along the entire trail of human history, the entire trail of human families and human civilization, Jesus split time into, Jesus tore the curtain into, and he, the Prince of Peace, the one who came and preached peace and is our peace, will divide, to put it simply, those who are in Christ and those who are against Christ. But he comes to those who are outside of him, to those who are walking away from him. He comes to those who are actively rebelling against them, full of grace and truth. He goes to the sinner, to the wanderer, to the outcast, to the adulterer. We see this in the Gospels over and over and over again. He goes to the swindler. He goes to the dead. He goes to the blind, the deaf, the oppressed, the possessed. And he says, here I am. He intercepts them on their path to rebellion. He intercepts them on their path to death. And he puts himself in front of them. And he says, here I am. Here I am. And we have to reckon with whether we will say, okay, yes. Or if we say, no, thank you. He came to set the world on fire, to save the world from judgment, to draw the world to himself. And finally, he came as clear as earth and sky. Verses 54 through 55 now, Jesus is almost comical here. He says to the crowd, oh, good job, you. 
you know how to interpret the weather. You see clouds coming from the west and you think to yourself, it's going to rain today. It says, good job. Good job, you. You can see the winds. You can feel the winds blowing from the south. You know it's going to be a scorcher. If he were speaking to us northern Virginians today, he might say something along the lines of, good job, you. You know when the weather forecasters predict a sixteenth of an inch of snow. Cancel school for four days. <laughs> Activate the National Guard. Good job, you. You know how to interpret the signs of the weather. And then comes verse 56. Verse 56, Jesus says, You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Leon Morris writes in his commentary on this text, They understood the winds of earth, but not the winds of God. They could discern the sky but not the heavens. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. Might seem a little harsh, but here's what Jesus was doing. He was doing the same thing that you do when you're trying to wake somebody up. You start with a gentle hand on their shoulder. You start with a low tone of voice. But when they won't wake up, and you have to get somewhere on time, You have to catch a flight, and you've tried that hand on their shoulder, and you've tried that low tone of voice. Finally, you will do whatever you can to wake them up. And Jesus is saying to the people that he loves so much, Jesus is saying to the ones he came to save, Jesus is saying to the ones who are actively rebelling against him, and it's as clear as day in front of their eyes, he's saying, wake up! How can you not see what's right in front of your eyes? wake up. You have to reckon with Jesus. You have to do business with Jesus. No more putting it off till later. No more waiting until you have your life together. No more waiting until you have all your affairs in order. No more thinking, I'll get to it when I get to it. Jesus says, no, no, right now. Let's get to it. I'm right in front of your face, so wake up. He came as clear as earth and sky, is what he's saying. So use that same judgment you use. Use the same judgment. Don't suspend your judgment, he's saying. It's not what coming to Christ involves, suspending your judgment. He's saying, no, 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 no. Use your judgment. Use that brain I gave you. Use your observational powers. You who I created. Use that judgment. Use it. And see what's right in front of your face and reckon with reality of Jesus the man. Almost uh, 25 years ago now, a movie came out that I loved. It was called The Truman Show. How many of you have seen The Truman Show by any chance? Because if you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to totally ruin it for you now. I'm very sorry, but you have had 25 years, so. (laughs) The movie is about a man named Truman Burbank, who is the first person in this movie to ever be adopted by a television show. And his whole life, starting at his birth, unbeknownst to him, is a fraud. He's inside one giant television show filmed on one giant television set filled with hundreds, thousands of actors. Everyone except him is in on it. They're all actors. 
It's all fake. It's all a 24-hour show called The Truman Show. And his whole life, his whole life is a fraud. His mom and dad, frauds. His friends, frauds. His school, his family vacations, the local store where he buys groceries, his job, his marriage, they're all frauds. The traffic he sits in in the morning on the way to his fraud job, it's fraud traffic. The sky above, the moon in that sky, the sand at the beach, the ocean itself, it's all a fraud. And he begins to suspect it, and he thinks he's going crazy until one day he's out in his fraud boat on the fraud ocean, and the producer of the show, who up until that point has served basically as his fraud creator, creates a fraud storm. And this fraud storm pushes his fraud boat up against the wall of the fraud horizon line. And he realizes it was all an illusion. He had been living inside of a fraud. And the movie ends, spoiler alert, with Truman Burbank walking out of the illusion into the light of reality. Friends, from the time every single one of us is born, we are infected by sin. The Bible calls that our sinful nature. This sinful nature infects every human being and every human culture, and it creates an illusion. It creates an illusion of self-sufficiency, of self-happiness, of self-governance, of self, 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 self. It's an illusion. It's a fraud. And Jesus comes to us. Jesus intercepts us, and he says, Oh, how I long to break you out. Oh, how I long to set you free. Oh, how I long to draw you to me. That's why it's one thing to reckon with his teachings. It's a whole other thing to reckon with the man. You're not here by accident this morning. You're not here by chance. You're here because God so longs for you to see and savor the beauty and the glory and the kindness and the mercy and the forgiveness of his son and to turn to him in faith if that's you on that path away to come out of the illusion, to come out of the fraud, into the light of reality, into the light of Jesus himself. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, Peter wrote, but is patient towards you. Yes, you. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance he came to set the world on fire. He came to save the world from judgment. He came to draw the world to himself, and he came as clear as earth and sky. And he's not a fraud. He's the truest thing that's ever been true, the most beautiful thing that's ever been beautiful, the most glorious thing that's ever been glorious, and he invites you and draws you to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great grace that we see in your Son, Jesus Christ, in the heart of our Savior, in the eyes of our Savior, in the words of our Savior, in the hands of our Savior, 
and the feet of our Savior pierced there on that cross. Oh, Father, draw us. Draw us to Jesus that we would turn again and again to him, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.